in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. Welcome to Rob Kane's Ancient Rome Refocused. History for the Brave. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Episode 8, Season 2. If you talk about the Romans, you've got to talk about the Greeks. And if you talk about the Greeks, you eventually have to talk about the Trojans. On the show, we have Eric Schanauer. He's the writer-illustrator of the graphic novel The Age of Bronze. We're going to interview him later on the show. If you want a fun and interesting graphic novel to read about ancient Troy, this is for you. As you know, I love getting comments or phone calls. If you have anything that you want to say or make a comment about a trip to a museum or a place of antiquity, you can write into rob at ancientromerefocused.org. Remember, ancient Rome refocused is one word. Or call into the hotline and leave a message, 855-209-6230. That's 855-209-6230. The title of this episode is Ancient Troy, Graphic Novels, and Brad Pitt? As you sleep. Her voice was strange, like the buzzing of bees. He ignored the woman's voice. It was something else that woke him. The smell of burning wood. He opened his eyes, and he was startled, for standing at the bottom of the bed was the goddess Aphrodite. His mother, his goddess mother. She pointed to the window with a concerned look on her face. Rise, Aeneas, and see the beginning of the end. He bowed slightly and respectfully, walking past her to the window. Many times she had come to his aid. He staggered across the room wiping the sleep from his eyes, going to the window to look out. The north quarter where the wooden horse stood was ablaze. A circle of fire surrounded it, 
and the flames moved slowly out in a perfect circle like the spokes of a wheel following the main streets. This was not an accidental fire. It moved like a sacking fire as warriors moved up the streets with torches setting every house alight. He could hear shouts float up from the street. He turned with a start to hear the clash of arms inside the royal enclosure. He looked at the goddess with a question formed with nothing but his eyes. Greeks! was all she said. Aeneas immediately shouted his wife Crusa to rise. He called for his shield-bearer that slept in the outside corridor, the boy with the red and flowing hair. Drop your cock and let go your locks. Rise, boy, the Greeks are in the gates. He never wanted to commit his tribe to this war, but they were tied by blood to the house of Prime. His wife was the daughter of Prime and Hecuba. He knew by instinct that he was the better warrior than Paris or Hector, and had the instinct for battle, but an entire retinue of sons would have to die in the battlefield before he would get his chance to lead the Trojan horde. Prime sired sons like a bull. Anyway, the best, Hector, was gone, and lesser sons could not meet his genius. Find the men, he shouted to the boy with the flowing hair. The boy looked shocked. What if they went to defend the city? What if they are scattered in the melee? What city? The city is gone, Aeneas explained. He used his left hand to point at the window. The flames of the city could be seen from the balcony. Ashes floated into the bedroom on the wind. The shield-bearer did not move. Still holding our cock, pretty lad, tell the men to rendezvous at the inlet cove. Go, go, the world cracks, and you stand still. Go! The boy ran down the hall, shouting all the way, for the men to rally! The maids raised the children from their beds, their eyes still filled with sleep. His wife, Crusa, stood ready, her arms filled with jewels and pretty dresses. He knocked those things from her hands. Food, water, is what we need. She heeds his orders and gathers what she can. What shall we do, she moaned, already feeling the groping hands of the Greeks. We go home, he said. We go home. Aeneas was the second cousin to the king of Troy. He led the Dardanian allies and until his death was the principal lieutenant of Hector himself. Dreams had plagued him before the war that he was destined to become the king of the Trojan people. That is why he brought his tribe to fight this war, and the possibility that the dreams would come true. But there were too many sons, and though he is one of the best warriors, 28 kills, there were always more sons of Prime to claim the center command. We go home, he said again. Home is gone, his wife shouted. There were rumors that the Greeks had raided the Dardanian cities and scattered the people across the plains. Aeneas knew that what she said was probably true. Home was nothing more than a cinder, a burned-out husk, where the poor were left to starve in the streets. All he had left were his Aeneids, his followers. He would have to hope that the shield-carrier would be able to get through with his message, but first he must take his family out of harm's way. Where's father? he asked. He refused to leave his bed, his wife said. 
Aeneas went to his father's room. Father, refusing to leave your bed for just another hour of sleep? He asked. Such is my right, he snapped. No, no, not on this night. Father, let the Greeks find you in your bed and spend an eternity in it. Such is my right, his father said again. No debate, Aeneas said, and snatched him from the bed and placed him on his back. Hold on, old man. Tonight I am your horse, the Sconus. Remember your horse? The stallion has come for you, and I am his back. Are you ready to ride, father? Yes, the old man croaked, and then went back to sleep. Outside in the corridor, he took one more look to make sure he had everyone. His wife, the slaves, the children, the dog. And, of course, his father, who clung to his back. Standing down the hall near the corridor was Aphrodite. She pointed into the dark. This way, son of Anchises. As he moved past her, he heard the goddess whisper in his ear. Your father grows old, gray, his eyes dim. Once he had black hair and a back as strong as the cliffs of Mount Olympus. I loved him, and I love you. He looked at her and replied, He spoke of you often and missed the smell of your hair, he once said. He said it reminded him of honey. The goddess smiled and nodded. Move quickly, for I can hear the footsteps of the Greeks. Aeneas and his family had lived in the palace for close to ten years. They knew the proper sounds of the castle interior. It was carefully regimented, laid out with bells, flutes, and drums to note the hours of the day. But now, with the Greeks under the roof, the sounds were strange. A stony silence, accented with loud thuds and screams, and voices laced with shouts of terror. What is that noise? Grusa asked. Someone trying to get in? It was his mother, Aphrodite, that answered. No, someone trying to get out. The palace was waking up. People were being roused from their beds. Slaves were going room to room, passing the news. The Greeks are in the city. The Greeks are in the city. The Greeks are in the city. Everyone up. Everyone up. Aeneas glanced at Aphrodite, who smirked and said, Follow me, Aeneas, who carries my mortal husband upon his back. Follow me, and I shall lead you to safety. She floated on the air, glided down the hallway towards the back of the royal enclosure. He followed. He glanced once more at his family, what was left of his line, and he ran to catch up. His family trotted behind. They moved three quarters before they stopped. Someone screamed. A man backed out of a door, his hands bloodied. The end, the end, he said, holding out his hands for inspection for all to see. Aeneas stopped. He motioned for his family to hold back, to stand back in the shadows. And then he faced the man with the bloodied hands. He placed his father down upon the ground, and his wife comforted the old man, and then Aeneas moved forward. 
And as the man thrust his hands in his face, the blood clotting on his fingers, he pushed past and inspected the room from whence he came. Inside were two women laid out like rag dolls upon their beds, their throats cut, their bodies in odd positions, sprawled and thrown down as if discarded like garbage upon the heap. My wives, they sleep, the man said. Aphrodite, goddess mother, appeared at his side, her face almost sorrowful. He killed them both. Death was preferable rather than to have his wives fall into the hands of the Greeks. All it takes is a small jerk of the knife, and both live in Troy forever. The goddess must have read his face when he bloked back at his family. No, Aeneas. The gods have something else for you. Drop such thoughts. The future is on my path I have laid out for you. You shall see a light that draws you to it like an insect near the hunting fire. It is then she reached out and laid her fingers upon his eyes. He felt a burning which seemed to singe with fire and quench with cold water at the same time. Open them, son of Anchises. He did, and he felt rested, and somehow above the fear that threatened to seize his mind. The end, the end, the bloodied hand man moaned from behind. Aphrodite shook her head. This is being played out in a hundred rooms. The fall of Troy means the end of life itself. For some strange reason, he wanted to see what had occurred in that room up close. The bloodied man tried to urge him to come and see, and he began to step towards the women, but Athena blocked his path. Do not go into that room, or he will apply the same remedy to your throat. Move on, move on. His mind has been seized by fear and has been driven insane. So he moved on, and motioning his family to follow him, they fled down the halls down corridor after corridor in blackness, with the noises of the horror happening around them. They kept on moving, until Aeneas froze in his tracks. He had almost turned a corner. To the right, two warrior Greeks blocked their path. Their attention was taken up by gold that they dragged into the hall. He motioned for his family to be quiet. He set his fa father down once more, and he spied carefully around the corner. The Greek berserkers were rummaging through the chest of golden trinkets, their faces entranced by the gold and silver, their eyes wide like they had gazed upon a god. They had laid down their guard, their shields up against the wall, their swords for a moment at rest from the evening slaughter. They were drunk on the loot, like a slave chained next door to a vineyard, and one unexpected night escapes to drink an entire barrel only to vomit it up. Aeneas noticed their swords were wet with blood. Their arms and legs seemed bathed in it. Aphrodite was quickly at his side. She whispered with urgency. Go at them now. Strike them now while they are drunk on the blood of Troy. Do it now. Kill them both. The one with the big nose is blind in his left eye. The other is weak in his right knee and has trouble getting up from the ground. Go, now, go! 
Aeneas raced forward, keeping to the left of Big Nose, and cut open his belly with one stroke. Weak knee swore and tried to meet his attack. He was on the ground, running his hands over the gold, and saw himself looking up at the Trojan warrior, bringing the edge of his shield down upon his nose. His nose split in two, and the bronze edge shoved into the front of his face, breaking his teeth and jaw. He was dead with one swift stroke. His wife, slaves, and children screamed, and their voices carried down the hall. Aeneas shouted them into silence. Move quickly. You're in a maze, with each corridor being cut off. Do not let the Greeks force you down a path you do not wish to go. The Greeks are now in the king's chamber. They are moving down each corridor, going room to room, killing the men, raping the women, and chaining the children like dogs to be sold at market. Move quickly, son of my husband. Go this way. He turned to his family and pointed the way. Aphrodite leads us to safety, he said out loud. His father said nothing. It was when they passed the king's chamber that he saw her, Helen. Helen. She was in her room, shivering like a mouse. She knew what was coming. She was the cause, the cause of everything. His heart beat rapidly in his chest. His eyes grew hot, and he ordered the slaves to strip his father off his back. Take him, he said, his voice strained and full of anger. He entered the room. It stank of perfume. What a joke! The great love of Paris, and now she was the whore of a lesser son. Diophobus stood by the window, watching the slaughter below. Your husband comes for you, said Diophobus. He laughed. He then screamed into the night. She is mine, Menelaus. She belongs to me. I have had her many times in many places. Paris has had her as well. Come, Menelaus, cock-cold husband. Find my room. I wait for you. He danced around the room, swinging his blade back and forth, fighting an imaginary Greek king, laughing as he did it. And in his madness, his blade almost struck Helen. But Helen was quick, she was always quick, and she dropped to the floor, avoiding the blade. He was mad. Aeneas lost his temper. He entered the room, and using nothing but a shield, he hit the boy, bringing him down. Diophobus was knocked into unconsciousness. Helen rose up. Good, she said. Good. She ran forward and took her husband's sword and went to a corner of the room and lifting up two boards in the corner, she hid it underneath the floor, secreting it away from her husband and from anyone who entered the room. She locked it away for a reason. He won't be killing anyone now, she said. Not you, not anyone, not even Menelaus, if he happens to walk through the door. Aeneas said nothing. So many men had died at her feet, Hector gone, Paris gone, and even the Amazon queen who led her female warriors to join the defense of Troy, and even she fell in love with Helen herself. What is wrong with you, Helen said. Why are you staring at me? 
It was a silly thing for her to say. Men stared at her every day. She lived for those stares. She dragged them in. Aeneas stepped forward, bringing his blade up. He intended to kill Helen. He had no love for Diophobus, but Diophobus would be an easy kill for anyone who walked in that door. And the Greeks were coming. They were definitely coming down that hall. She had seen Paris slaughtered from the walls, and she would see her new protector slaughtered at the foot of her bed. Suddenly, in front of him, stood Aphrodite. She is not the cause of this, Aeneas. We gods and goddesses have decided Troy's fate. Her fate. Your fate from the beginning. Back away and continue on your way. Drop your blade, son of Anchises. Do not slay her on this day. The eyes of Helen were defiant as he backed out of the room. She is cold as a marble, he thought. Beauty with no soul. The outer corridors began to fill up with smoke. Aeneas realized that he could hardly see the brightly colored paintings and mosaics of the great halls. He squinted and rubbed his eyes and was aware that a gray smoke was following them as they fled deeper into the Palace of Prime. The Greeks were burning the great roof over their heads. It was a race to escape the grit filling the air. They ran deeper and deeper into the palace, into the vast storage rooms, past the damp and dripping cells of those prisoners not even bothered to be let out, for there was no time, and being condemned by Prime or condemned by the Greeks was still a just and fitting sentence. Soon they had nowhere else to run. Facing them stood nothing but stone. He heard his family groan in disappointment, and the children started to cry. It looked like they were trapped. Again the room filled with the sound of bees, and he heard Aphrodite's voice ring in his head. Proud Aeneas, your eyes deceive you. This wall is deception. The wall is false. Like a feint of troops to throw the enemy off the real target. Strike the wall, the stones are weak. Mere shells on the surface of your escape. The slaves were put to work. They picked up whatever they could, a chain, a piece of wood, a hilt of a sword were all used to strike and scrape at the rock. And they could see the false wall fall away, revealing a massive door of iron. It was thick and heavy, made with iron hinges, and on its round door was the face of Poseidon winking at everyone in the room. Aphrodite spoke. Here, here is your escape. Yes, Mother Goddess. His father, who was still on his back, whispered in his right ear, Son, who do you talk to? What invisible spirit walks with you on this night? What goddess guides you? He looked over his shoulder at his father. Mother speaks to me. She is here? As real as the night, as real as the buzzing of bees. His father smiled. Tell her that I love her. Aeneas looked at Aphrodite, who smiled and reached out to touch his father's hair. Her fingers moved the last of his gray hairs as softly as a breeze. She paused, her eyes running over the face of the old man upon his back. Mortals burn too fast, like an ill-made candle. What do I do next, goddess mother? Grab the great handle and turn to the right. 
Through the Poseidon door is your escape. He pulled hard, and it refused to move. Many said the walls were set by Poseidon himself. The walls of Troy were cut by salt, and the block sealed by the glue of pounded shells. It had to be true. For stare closely at the white stone, and you could see hardened sea creatures, as if turned to stone by Medusa herself. The handle did not move. He looked at the goddess and complained, It is old. It is rusted shut. Try it again, Aphrodite urged. The handle squeaked, barely moved, unrelenting and tight against the iron workings of the door. More shouts came from down the hall, shouts of Trojans caught in the nets of the Greeks. Women screamed and wailed as they were dragged away. Have you no faith? Are you not the great warrior? Use the arms given to you by your father. He pulled again and strained against the handle, and to his surprise it squealed in protest to be woken up after all these years. As if by magic it did move, it finally gave way, and the great Poseidon door opened with a gush of air filling the hallway. Where does it lead? A slave asked, afraid to enter into Poseidon's maw. Away from here, said Aeneas. The small party entered the darkened mouth, stepped through the eighteen-foot-thick wall like a stony throat into the outside, and found themselves in a small cleft cut into the earth, with forest and vine overgrowing it and hiding it from view. They could feel the air, and above them on the plain they could hear shouts, screams, and the sound of burning wood. Their feet sunk deep in black goo. It was used to piss, to defecate, remove the unwanted things from the camp. The stench was almost overpowering. The trench ran away from the main roads and camps. It led them to safety. Soon they came out from the stench, from below the ground and into an open valley past the enemy lines. The sky was lit up from the flames of Troy. Which way, Aeneas wondered, looking at Troy burning behind him, into the night sky over the sea. They must get to the inlet cove. That is where the Aeneids would be waiting for him with their ships. Aphrodite, mother goddess, appeared at his side. Her presence shone brightly, a light that only he could see. Come this way. The sound of honeybees spun through the air. We shall step where the Greeks have not stepped. We shall move behind trees darkened in the shadow of moonlight. The hidden place underneath the beams of light, that is where we shall be while the Greeks squint in the brightness of the moon. Aeneas led the way. Finally, with Aphrodite's help, they found the inlet cove. The ships of the Aeneids had not shown. No sail could be seen under the starlit sky. He hoped that the shield carrier with the long red hair had found the Aeneids and was not killed before he could deliver the message. Aeneas had 200 soldiers and their families would bring the tribe to over 600 people at least. A small Dardanian nation, true, but enough to start a nation. Why not? From their location they could see black smoke roll up into the morning sky. The sun was rising, they would have to flee and escape to the sea. In the light the Greeks would recognize their tunics and their armor and draw them into their nets like a school of fish. Aeneas looked back and his face grew hard. The towers were in flames. Fire came from every window and from behind the high walls. 
It was a huge conflagration, fire and spit, blue and yellow flames mixed up with filthy smoke, blotting out the morning sky itself. From their vantage points they could see men and women jumping from the walls, taking a quick and easy death over the slow death of slavery. Many did not waste time, but simply stepped out into the air above, traveling to the ground below without emotion. From the main gate, a thick line of prisoners marched out in small steps. The women and men who did not cut their throats or jumped from the walls, their ankles were chained in shackles. Chains led them forward, and chains shall lead them throughout what remained of their lives. That is the price of displeasuring the gods. The streets were smeared with blood, making it impossible to walk. Doors were smashed. Each room, Doma's house, opened like a treasure chest to see what was waiting inside. Women pulled from under their beds. Men dispatched coldly. And if they fought back, dispatched ruthlessly. Strong boxes were cracked open. Heirlooms were draped around the neck of the looters, looking like desert princesses showing off their wealth. Twenty necklaces, which meant twenty homes, twenty women raped in their treasure stolen. The city did not roll over once the walls were breached. Quarters, street, and house held out against the rape, men fighting in a last-ditch effort to turn back the inevitable. Who left the horse inside the walls? Prime. Prime in his ego. A gift for the ego of Prime, the last of the Trojan warriors spat. The old fool, the befuddled old fool, they hissed as they fought from street to street and house to house. Aeneas! shouted the long-haired boy. He came in from the sea, hanging from the netting of the ship, waving for his attention and laughing. The youth had completed his mission and gathered the Aeneids and led them to the inlet cove. His emotions were inappropriate with the sight of Troy falling into ash. He was young, and, we, and he would have to learn the demeanor of a warrior. If he did not learn it on his own, Aeneas would kick it into him. He would talk to him later. Each of the oars were manned by Dardanians, all serious and dark-faced upon seeing the burning city in front of him. There were six ships, wave-cutters, with large eyes on the bow. The walls of Troy once stood tall, drapes of many colors floated in the wind. Tall and proud horses were bred and populated the stables. Prouder women and prouder men once walked its streets, their faces burned from the sun and the sea. Trojan ships, though not many, danced upon the wine-blue sea. Trojan horses were fought over and led away by the highest bidder to unknown lands, but no longer. Trojan art found its way into the Indus and the distant Hittite kingdoms, but no longer. Trojan princesses were wooed by foreign kings and led to live in foreign lands, but no longer. Trojan wine of distinct flavor and vintage was shipped in large kegs about the world, but no longer. Vineyards were picked over by fat-cheeked Greeks. The lambs were eaten and roasted over soldiers' fires, fattened with Trojan grain to fatten Greek bellies. The treasures of Troy taken. Trojan plays, the humor, body, and sharp, was now all gone, and dead upon the lips of poets and playwrights taken into slavery. Everything silenced in nothing but chains and ash.
Who are we now? Aeneas said to the dark, a stray thought they carried out to the stars and to the gods. Aphrodite glanced back at the city, and then at the Aeneids at their oars. She said, Sweet Aeneas, do you not know? You are the ones who will remember. You stay in Larissa. You will find peace. You will find a wonderful woman. You will have sons and daughters, and they will have children. And they will love you. When you are gone, they will remember you. When your children are dead, their children after them, your name will be lost. You go to Troy. Glory will be yours. They will write stories about your victories, flowers in the field. shields together, pike scraped pike, with the graveling strength of fighters armed in bronze, and their round shields pounded, boss on wielded boss, and the sound of struggle roared and rocked the earth, screams of men and cries of triumph breaking in one breath, fighters killing, fighters killed, and the ground streamed with blood. Terrified by the flashing bronze, the horsehair crest, the great ridge of the helmet nodding, bristling terror, so it struck his eye. And his loving father laughed, and his mother laughed as well, and glorious Hector quickly lifted the helmet from his head, set it down on the ground, and raising his son he kissed him, tossed him in his arms, lifted a prayer to Zeus and the other deathless gods. Zeus, O oh, you immortals, grant this boy my son, May he be like me, first in glory among the Trojans. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Sweet Helen, make me a mortal with a kiss. Her lips suck forth my soul. See where it flies. Come, Helen, come give me my soul again. Here will I dwell, for heaven be in these lips, and all is dross that is not Helena. Christopher Marlowe, Dr. Faustus. And catching sight of Helen, 
moving along the ramparts. They murmured one to another, gently, winged words. Who on earth could blame them? Ah, no wonder. The men of Troy and Argives, under arms, have suffered years of agony all for her, for such a woman. Beauty, terrible beauty. Who began these evils? She! The day when she gave birth to Paris. Who next was guilty? Priam, who knew the stuff his son was made of and let him roam the world. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Why did I go? Steal from your house in secret. Batman. Paris. Or any other name you like to call him. His mother's curse. When he came to me, a mighty goddess walked beside him. So now let no man hurry to sail for home, not yet, not till he beds down with a faithful Trojan wife. Payment in full for the groans and shocks of war we have borne for Helen, Nestor, and Homer's Iliad. have on the phone uh, Mr. Eric Schanauer, uh, who's the writer and illustrator of the graphic novel Age of Bronze. Welcome to Ancient Rome Refocused. Thank you very much, Rob. I'm glad to be here. Uh, before we get started, I just want to say I was searching through the stacks of the Library of Alexandria, my Alexandria, not the famous one, and I, I came across your graphic novel on Troy, and I was immediately drawn to it. Um, the drawings were realistic, the storyline intriguing, and some of the characters seemed slightly flawed, which made them more interesting. Part of the founding principles of what I'm trying to do on Ancient Rome Refocus is to talk to people that are keeping history alive, uh, either through research, education, hobbies, or in their art. And I, I know that graphic novels are big in Europe and Japan and are, are certainly popular here in the U.S., but uh, it seems to me that you stepped away from illustrating superheroes and, and have instead taken on mythological ones. Is there much difference between the two? Well, I think there is. Drawing superheroes has never been my biggest focus in my career as a cartoonist. I just take those jobs when they're offered to me and I have time. But writing and drawing Age of Bronze is my major project at the moment and has been for quite a number of years and will be for quite a few more years. It's much more personal project to me because I'm telling the story of the Trojan War 
in the way that I think is the most dramatic and the most exciting way to do it. I'm just trying to retell the story for today's audience and make it as exciting as possible for readers of today. Uh, what uh, drew you to this story? Uh, why, why this subject as a graphic novel? I really liked Greek mythology when I was a kid, and I went through a period where I read a lot of it, got lots of books out of the library, children's versions of the Greek myths. But the story of Troy never really appealed to me as a child. I knew various things about it, you know, the things that most most people know, Helen and the, and the wooden horse, things like that. But it wasn't until I was an adult and I was finishing a major project and was casting around for uh, another project to start. And I happened to be listening to a book on tape called The March of Folly from Troy to Vietnam by Barbara Tuckman, who's a, a historian. She's an American. chapter on, on the Trojan War I found really, really intriguing. I, I realized that there were many, many different versions of the story of the Trojan War, that Homer's Iliad was only the beginning, and I thought it would be a really great comic book series to uh, take the complete story of the Trojan War, take all the different versions that I could possibly find and smush them all together and reconcile all the contradictions and also set it in the correct time period using the history and the archaeology of the places where it occurred. And uh, just the idea of that made me really excited. I, At the time, this was back in 1991, I realized that it would be a very large project and I wasn't sure I really wanted to take on something so large. But every once in a while I'd be in a bookstore and book that had something to do with the Trojan War would sort of leap off the shelves into my hands almost, and after a while I realized I did have enough enthusiasm to see this project through to the end, and uh, I started started work on it, started research, and uh, eventually sold the project and have been working on the comic book for, uh, the first, first issue was published in 1998, and the first collected volume came out in 2001. So that's how Age of Bronze came into being, and I just thought the Trojan War was a fascinating story. It's one of the world's oldest stories. It's retold over and over again in every generation, and I guess I'm just one of the latest retellers. How long did it take you to research the book? Well, I began real research in about 1992. I felt I had enough to at least start working on it in, uh, let's see... I think I began writing scripts in around 96, and then I actually began drawing in 97. And that's and after I had some artwork together, I began selling, trying, going around trying to sell it to a publisher. I'm still doing research, but the major stuff is I, I completed within the, the first four or five years. Every once in a while, though, particularly for archaeological stuff that I have to draw, I run across some item that I just don't have any information on, and I have to go do some research on that. The story of the Trojan War has been retold so many times in so many different versions that I'm sure I will never find every single reference to it, no matter how many years I keep looking. Of course, all the major retellings, the Iliad, the Aeneid, uh, the Greek tragedies that, that address the Trojan War, things like that, I... I was able to gather very quickly because they're quite still prominent in our literature. 
but there's many, many obscure things, obscure plays, particularly like from the 1700s. They weren't major works, and many of them have been lost or just in single copies. So I have to do a lot of research in libraries for things like that. Often, they actually don't add much to my knowledge of the story. They're very obscure things, or they're parodies or developments of some episode which, which just won't fit in very well. But I try to expose myself to all of these different versions and, and hope that aspects of them come across, at least in my conception. It's just sort of a big, I throw everything into the pot and just as, I, as the story unfolds and I have to keep developing where it's going, I hope that echoes of every single version that I've, I've ever been exposed to will end up in the finished product and that once Age of Bronze is finished, it will have at least an echo of every single version of the Trojan War that I've ever heard, that I've ever read or heard. Frankly, I think the drawings are magnificent. Uh, There's uh, beautiful renderings of the human form, uh, which made me kind of wonder, are you a self-taught artist or did you attend a certain school? Well, I've drawn all my life and I've drawn all the time. Um, when I was growing, when I was growing up, I would cover all my homework assignments with drawings on the back. So, in some sense, yeah, I'm self-taught, but I also have taken art lessons all my life. My parents were supportive of my my interests, and they would send me to art classes. After high school, I attended the Joe Kubert School of Cartoon and Graphic Art, which is a small trade school in New Jersey, which basically uh, trains people to enter the field of comics to become cartoonists. Uh, they also have graphic design and some animation classes. But their main thrust is comic books, and that's what I wanted to do. Uh, di- did you always have an interest in ancient history? No, I did not. <laughs> All my knowledge of uh, the Bronze Age Aegean has come from my the necessity of studying all this stuff for Age of Bronze. I liked ancient Egypt. Um, I saw the traveling exhibit of the King Tut's treasures, which was touring the country in 77. I saw it in Chicago, and for a long time I wanted to do a graphic novel based in ancient Egypt. Uh, I was actually planning this in the early 90s, but the wealth of information we have from ancient Egypt was just really overwhelming. Um, I, ha- I was buying tons and tons of books trying to assimilate all this information in, into my idea for a story. And I just sort of got bogged down. Once I had the idea to retell the Trojan War story, I started looking at books on the archaeology of the period. And I was really, really relieved to find that all the books basically had a lot of the same images time after time. So while there's nowhere near the amount of information that we have from the Bronze Age Aegean world that we do from ancient Egypt. It was it just made my task a lot easier. I could get my head around it. There there's is a lot of information we have from uh, ancient Greece and ancient Troy, but it's nowhere near what we have from ancient Egypt. The armor of the Trojans and the Greek heroes uh, seem to be uh, slightly different than how it's portrayed in Hollywood. You know, when you see a certain type of helmets and everything, whenever they do anything about Greece, they, it's always portrayed in a certain way. But, but your armor seems 
more real but clunkier, harder, harder to put on. Did you research the armor, or is it? Did you find that maybe there that most Hollywood films do it in the wrong time frame, or 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 is it me? It's not you. <laughs> um, yeah, Hollywood tends to use stuff that's from a later period. Um, I guess they think it looks cooler, or else they think that's what people are going to expect. Uh, for instance. Lots of Hollywood films use Corinthian helmets for ancient Greece. No matter what period it's in, those didn't Corinthian helmets didn't exist during the Bronze Age, so I can't use those. I'm, I am setting Age of Bronze in the 13th century BCE, specifically the time when, if the Trojan War really happened, this is what I hope it would have looked like. I do cast a bit of a wide net. I will take artifacts from the, the 14th century BCE and use them if I can't find something that I need from the 13th century. So I may be a little bit anachronistic, but I'm certainly not as anachronistic as, as Hollywood tends to be. I try to be very, very as authentic as possible I can't claim that I'm completely authentic. Every once in a while I do something and then a few years later I'll find some information that tells me what I did was wrong. In the first issue of Age of Bronze, I did some things that I wish I hadn't done, that I hadn't drawn now. For instance, there's an enclosure, an animal enclosure, and I birthed an animal enclosure for cows, and I wish I had not drawn these spear-like projections to keep predators away. I should have just put um, thorny branches on the top of the walls to try as a deterrent to predators. But I didn't know that at the time, and I just did the best I could. That's what. That's all I can claim is I'm doing the best I can. Well, I think a lot of people, when they're writing books about ancient history and such, they they do research and they make their best guess. And, yeah. and, and, uh, I've seen in, in historical novels that I've read, I've seen at the end of the book, you see, uh, I, I did my best to try to put together an image of that time frame. If someone knows better, uh, that's great. Um, you know, it's, it's, you just have to do what you can. Right. I, I've looked at photographs of the, uh, archaeological site and, uh, and I could be wrong, but there's a familiar image of two lions over a stone gate in your graphic novel. And chariots are are going underneath with spearmen uh, marching behind the chariots, and this kind of pricked a memory of a gate in a photograph. Did did you try to incorporate some of the walls and in, in photography into your uh, drawings? Yeah, well, that specific gate—that's the Lion Gate at Mycenae, which is still there. Yeah, that was part of the walls of Mycenae. Mycenae is an important location in the story of the Trojan War. That's where the High King Agamemnon rules was determined to put that into Age of Bronze since that's what would have been there at the time or probably was there at the time. The Lion Gate was new in the late Bronze Age. It was seems to have been built about the middle of the 13th century BCE. So maybe it was maybe it wasn't up yet while the events that whatever events events that inspired the Trojan War were happening. But I have drawn it in major bronze, and uh, I try to be as authentic as possible in 
all the architecture, all the aspects, all the clothes, all the hair, all the weapons, all the armor, the chariots, the landscape, whatever what whatever I'm drawing, I want to be as authentic as possible. As I said before, I can't claim <laughs> I can't claim that this is exactly what it would have looked like, but I'll I'm doing my best. I uh, I went to Troy in two thousand six. Much, much later, you know, I had been working on the, on the project for quite a while. Went to Troy and hiked all around the area, took lots of photos, lots of video, did some sketching. Uh, last uh, fall, I went, I finally got to Greece and saw the Mycenaean era sites there. I went to Mycenae, saw the Lion Gate, was able to touch it, take photographs. It was really great. How, how did that make you feel? <laughs> I only ask is it's it's, a, it's something that I I've kind of dreamed about myself. I, I you know I know you know everybody has a different idea of what it would feel like, you know. Some may say it's just a stone and some people may get all sorts of things from it, but uh I don't know, just a thought. Um when I went to Troy, I expected to be sort of in awe a little bit. But when I got there, I don't think I I wasn't really in awe. I just, it was like, oh yeah, this is what it looks like, because I've seen it in so many photographs. I've seen it described. It's, the site of Troy seemed a lot smaller than I had imagined it. But, you know, what I was there for and in the, in the Greek Bronze Age sites was just to soak up all, as much information as possible. That's what I tried to do, just get information, just feel like, make it a part of myself. I had drawn all those sites before. So I had some familiarity with them. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be drawing the Greek sites as much anymore because uh, the story has gotten to the point where everybody's at Troy, the, the war's underway, and they're, the, the Greeks are camped outside of Troy, and the main location is going to be there for the rest of the story. I wish I been able to get to Greece and see those sites before I had to draw them. Um, I had drawn most of them earlier during the gathering of the army before the army sales for Troy. How did I feel? It was, I, I'm totally glad I went. I, going to Troy was one of the most magnificent things I've ever, ever done in my life. Um, I was there for 12 days. Greece, I, I didn't get as much time. I, I went to Mycenae, Pelos, uh, Tyrans and Monopolia, and we had we had a weekend. But I was actually uh, taken around by Jack Davis and his wife Sherry Stalker. Um, Jack is the current director of the American School of Classical Studies at Athens, and um, so and he and Sherry have been digging at Pelos for a couple decades now. So I couldn't have had better tour guides to see these sites. Um, if they're the experts. So I was really thankful for that. I, I got I got to the Roman Forum and uh, it it I hate to admit it I I was walking down into the Forum and I got a little misty eyed a grown man getting a little tear in his eye over visiting the Roman Forum. Can you beat that? <laughs> I think that's perfectly fine. That's totally understandable. Uh, which brings up a question: Is uh, you know I see a lot of movies all the time and you know they never talk about. Who really the Trojans are? I mean, it's it's if they're they're other and other people in armor. They they're always you know both sides are speaking English or British English or whatever, and 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 such. I mean, who really were the Trojans? 
Who do you who do you think they were? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer that question. Who were the Trojans? Uh, they were a people that lived at, in the northwest corner of Turkey. Uh, the site of Troy was occupied for about 3,000 years or more. More like um, there are nine nine major levels which have been divided and subdivided into many, many, many levels. I think it's like 30 or 40 some levels, occupation levels of, of civilizations. The level of that's most closely identified with the Trojan War is the sixth level, Troy six. Um, there was some continuity of culture to Troy seven, so sort of a question if there was a Trojan War or whatever events inspired the story of the Trojan War, did they take place during the time of Troy six or the time of Troy seven? A bit different uh, archaeologists arguing different things, different points. Um, that's not so uh, germane to Age of Bronze. Um, I don't really have to worry about whether what was the exact point in time um, I can draw from the archaeology in the early part of the story more from Troy 6 and from the, in the later part of the story I'll be drawing more from Troy 7 um, I don't think at this point anyone can prove me right or wrong and it's it's basically I see Age of Bronze as historical fiction anyway um, I think my greatest asset to the experts, to archaeologists, is in my ability to reconstruct uh, daily life, what it might have looked like at Troy, so they can picture it. Because um, if you're an archaeologist, you're not necessarily an artist who can uh, reconstruct things. So I think that's part of what my value is in at least an academic world. I mean, that's not my main thrust. I'm just I'm telling this story to be to uh, for I guess literary or entertainment reasons. Uh, you know, I, I look I look I look at the faces of your characters and and they're so full of expression. Uh, you can see fear, hate, and, and at times even boredom on their faces. I mean. The, now the heroes seem to have faults, and and we just don't see one face presented to the reader. There's a whole array of emotions, good and bad. I mean, was this intentional? Well, absolutely. I'm I'm telling a dramatic story with characters who have emotions, and, and the uh, story is 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 character in conflict. And uh, without any conflict, you're not going to have a very interesting story. Uh, obviously, the story of the Trojan War is one of the oldest conflicts that we know of. So, this, the characters are all pretty have been pretty well established over the centuries. I'm trying to stay well within the tradition of who the characters are: um, Achilles, Agamemnon, Odysseus, uh, all the all the familiar characters. Uh, so, yeah, they have to have uh, they have to show their emotions. That's the way I tell the story. That's the way the readers relate to these human beings, even though these characters have pedigrees that go back thousands of years, they they essentially are just human beings just like us. That's one of the reasons I, I enjoy the story and I'm retelling it, is to show people, yeah, you may think that this is some dry, dusty classic, but these characters are people just like you are. Um, they have to live their lives, they have to make their decisions, they come into conflict with others, they have to deal with all the 
vicissitudes of life, just like we do now. They're just from a different time period. In in your version of the story of Troy, I I I really don't see any gods in the story. Like I think I think there's been versions where you know we see what uh, Jupiter's or Zeus is thinking and and uh, and various gods and goddesses. And uh, there was a, a centaur, a Chiron, I believe. Uh, you drew him with a fake horse tail down at the back of his tunic. Was this an editorial decision to keep the gods at, at arm's length? Yeah, one of my basic uh, reasons in retelling this story, one of my goals is to show the story of the Trojan War on a human level and to remove, remove all the supernatural elements. Uh, so the gods don't come down as and affect the action. They don't fight with the warriors. They don't tell everybody what to do. Simply because I want to present it from a human, human, uh, act, human perspective. The uh, there are uh, gods that the characters worship. Of course, the uh, Achaeans, the Greek characters, worship the familiar Greek pantheon, at least the ones that we know of that were attested in documents from the late Bronze Age. The, the Trojans, however, worship, worship Hittite gods. As this goes back a little to the question about who, who were the Trojans. Location that is identified as Troy in northwest Turkey was on the fringes of the uh, Hittite Empire, the Great Hittite Empire, which flourished in the Bronze Age. We have documents from the Hittites talking about Troy, and it's been pretty well conclusively proven that the site that Heinrich Schliemann excavated in the 1800s is the site that Homer used for Troy. And there's various linguistic and written uh, alphabetical inscriptions that give really strong evidence that that, that, that was Troy the site that we, that we know today. And certainly there were conflicts in that area. It's situated geographically at a point where lots of trade routes, particularly sea routes for traders, would have, would have met. It's situated right at the point where Europe and Asia meet, and uh, many ships would have been sailing from the Aegean Sea, which is the eastern Mediterranean, up to the Black Sea, and certainly we have documents from uh, Egypt showing trade routes and these, some of these places were on, on around the Aegean were on Egyptian trade routes. So, and, and we have artifacts from all over the area in all these different places. We know that trade was very strong and because Troy was situated very advantageously, they obviously were a rich town and people would have wanted to attack them. So that's why there are probably things like that are where the story of the Trojan War grew, grew out of. But these are all very human things, human reasons for conflict. And that's what I concentrate on, not showing the gods, coming down and telling people what to do. This gives me a really interesting problem because in many versions of the Trojan War, the gods do instigate many of the actions. But that's really fascinating, a fascinating problem to me to have to figure out in my version of the story how to keep the plot going without the gods to 
show the characters coming to their own decisions and uh, advancing things without the inter intervention of the gods as characters. Of course, a lot of the characters say, well, I was inspired by the god, or obviously the gods want me to do this. But as a reader, we know that there, that all these decisions, decisions are motivated purely by the human reasons. What, what has the public's reaction been to your series, Age of Bronze? Overall, it's been overwhelmingly positive. Um, it's won awards. It's it sold well. The uh, Age of Bronze is first uh, published as uh, comic books, uh, 20 pages of art at a time, which come out periodically. And then every once, every few years, it's, those are collected into the graphic novels, which are several hundred pages of a, in a volume. And uh, the graphic novels really sell well, and those are have been very well received. Of course, not everybody likes everything about the series. I uh, get reactions from people. Let me see. Some negative reactions were uh, they can't tell some of the characters apart. I mean, not everybody has a big S on his chest or a big symbol telling telling the reader absolutely immediately who that character is. And the characters age and they wear different clothes in different scenes. So sometimes I guess it is hard to tell the characters apart. Um, at the beginning, uh, the all the Trojan princes, I designed them to all to look like brothers, since they are brothers, and I probably didn't design them well enough to be able for readers to immediately tell them apart, which I regret at this point, but that's one of those things where, well, I can't go back and redo everything. So um, I've tried to, since then, have certain aspects of the characters, like uh, Paris, one of the main Trojan princes, the one that kidnapped Helen, uh, wears a lion, uh, not a lion skin, but a cat skin, a leopard skin over his shoulder almost every time I draw him. So I hope that readers will be able to identify him by that symbol. Um, I did a much better job on many of the Greeks, the Achaean warriors, uh, to uh, differentiate them. And I think people don't have any problem telling them apart. Uh, well, well I, I, I never had any problems. Even when you put Achilles in, Achilles in a dress, I still could figure out who he was. And, okay, yeah. And I, and I, re I recognized the, uh, uh, the face. And, and, you know, strange enough, I, I, I reckon even while he was in a dress, I recognized his attitude. Um, he, he was, you know, you could, he was hiding a secret, and uh, it, it's the, it's the person hiding the secret. Ah, that's Achilles, and uh, so uh, that wasn't a problem for me at all. Well, good. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of Achilles, uh, okay, he was the greatest warrior of the Greek coast, uh, uh, but in your novel, and if, if I'm wrong, please let me know. But in your novel, you, he seems young, maybe a little untested. He's uh, full of youth, okay. Uh, he's battle-ready. He certainly wants to go to battle. But uh, what made him important to the cause? Uh, uh, what made Achilles more important than any, uh, any other warrior? Well, I'm not, sure, I'm not certain that he is important, more important than any other warrior. He is important in literary culture because... He's the main character of the Iliad, which is one of the oldest and greatest stories that we have. He, 
in Age of Bronze, he starts out very young, at about 12 years old. Um, by the time he gets to the point where he dies, towards the end of, end of the story, he'll be like, about 25. Um, but yeah, when he's young, he is untested. Uh, he goes through a, a path. He has to grow and turn into the person that we know from the Iliad, the uh, warrior who is more interested in his own no, his uh, noble nature, in his own honor, than he is in the rest of the any reason for the war. This sort of pointless war that uh, it just goes on and on and everybody becomes frustrated with. Maybe it's really an unfair question. I mean, because when you think about it, here I'm complaining, you know, why are we talking about Achilles? But see, that's the character they chose to talk about. So, uh, it, it, you know, he's he's the, one of the lead characters in the story. So it's yeah. uh, it, it, that was the one chosen. Nobody, you know, some of the minor characters, they didn't make the lead. So There's a number of characters in the story who go through um, significant uh, life decisions that they have to go. They, they start out at one point and have to go to an, and end up at another point. Achilles is one of those. Yeah, he starts out very young, untested, lots of enthusiasm, but he doesn't really know what he's getting into. Um, he has an over, overprotective mother. He has a sort of absent father. Um, he has many, many different relationships, romantic and sexual relationships during the story. But by the time he gets to his final battle, he's in a, he's a very different person than who he is when he started out. There are other characters who go through, who have to go through, uh, uh, journeys, go through, make, confront problems, make decisions. And those are the characters who are the, the most interesting and the most important to the story. Um, people like Hector, the great Trojan prince, um, Helen herself. She's a character that a lot of people seem to really dislike because she makes sort of reprehensible decisions very early on. She decides to leave her husband and go off with a young Trojan prince who's uh, several years younger than she is, who's not a very likable character, um, but who's actually who's very charismatic, charismatic, kind of fascinating. Another character that everyone is very important is uh, Odysseus. He, he's, uh, he's, he starts out more mature than a lot of the other characters, but, you know, he has... He discovers many things about himself, about his place in the world, about his relationship to the world around him over the course of his story, too. Um, he goes through a lot more after the Trojan War ends, um, the story in the Odyssey, his trip home from the Trojan War. But he's also one of the more fascinating characters. Agamemnon, the high king, the leader of the Greek forces, he's not a very likable character, but he's... Uh, he also goes through a lot of stuff, has to make a lot of decisions, has to uh, confront a lot of things about who he is, about how he relates to the world. Um, in the second graphic novel, he's confronted with the problem of sacrificing his eldest daughter, um, basically saying, yeah, you can kill her because there's no other way we're going to be able to reach Troy. And um, he has to make that decision. And one of the ch one of my challenges was how do I show a human being making the decision to let his daughter die? And I hope I pulled it off as believably as possible. I mean, it's not that I advocate anybody go around killing their daughters, but I wanted to show how that could, how a human could be pushed to the point of 
of making that decision, just having such overwhelming uh, conflict that someone actually goes there and says, okay, I can't make any other decision at this point but to let my daughter die. I think I, I think I pulled it off successfully, at least from reactions that I've gotten from readers. I, I, what I liked was how he was calling out uh, to Agamemnon's daughters, telling, you know, yelling out that I am here. That that kind of touched me in a big way. That he was giving her an out. It just it it, it added more drama to the scene, and uh, it just it just impressed me a lot. You're talking about Achilles. Achilles saying it. Yeah, Achilles, Achilles, uh, shouting out, uh, that I am here and, and, uh, all she had to do was call out, uh, yeah. and, uh, which she chose not to. Um, yeah. okay, I'm about to ask the big question now. I, I, I don't know if I'm gonna regret this, but, uh, what did you think of the Hollywood movie Troy? The one from 2004. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, it wasn't as bad as I expected it to be. What there were a couple things that I major things that I didn't like about it. One was at the beginning they put some sort of date on it, yet they uh, then proceed to uh, put all this anachronistic costuming and ships and architecture into it, stuff from other periods and stuff that they had just made up. Um, I, I'm fine with telling the story of the Trojan War as a fantasy. But if you're going to put a date on it, you can't tell it as really a fantasy. You've got to stick to the date if you're going to say, if you're going to give a date, stick to the date. If you're not going to give a date, you can do whatever you want. People have retold this story over and over and over again for thousands of years, and it's been pushed, pulled, twisted, done tons of stuff too. Uh, and Hollywood can do whatever they want with it, but I object to mixing your genres. If you're going to tell it as historical fiction, then use historical fiction. I have no problem with using mythology and fantasy, whatever you want to call it, but make your decision. So I did object to the anachronistic use of research. They took the lion gate and they put the lion, the relieving triangle of the lions from above the gate, they stuck it right into Agamemnon's throne room, which made absolutely no sense whatsoever. They probably thought it looked cool, but I don't care if it looks cool. It looks stupid to me if you're putting this thing there. It's laughable. There's no architectural reason for it to be there, or there is architectural reason for it to be in the wall above the gate. I mean, it makes them look stupid to me. I guess they think no one, oh, the, the few people that are going to uh, know what they're talking about, know better, don't really matter, and as long as they got their... 10 bucks or whatever it costs to get into the movie, who cares? But um, I just thought it was insulting. What I did like about the movie were some of the performances. I liked the, at the end, when they have some of the Trojan characters escaping from Troy, including like Paris, who, you know, is really supposed to, in the traditional story, dies. So I thought that was sort of weird. But when um, they have Aeneas going, and with Aeneas, they have this old man which the script doesn't refer to, and no one in the movie pays attention to this old man, but that's clearly Aeneas's father, who, in the traditional story, Aeneas carries out of Troy. Yeah, the traditional story is that Aeneas carries his father and his son out of Troy. They didn't have a son here, and they just had the father. But I wish they'd put more stuff like that in, just little things where if you know the real story, you would just go, oh, I know what's going on there in the background, and it doesn't really matter 
to the overall movie, but it would have just been fun little things like that. And they did that with, with Aeneas' father, Anchises, but uh, they didn't do enough of that for me. So overall, I was disappointed in the movie. I think, obviously, it was rather disappointing to most everybody. Uh, it certainly didn't make much of an impression on the movie world. It's not a movie that everyone talks about anymore. But but Brad Pitt looks good in armor, right? Uh, I thought he would have looked better if he used ar- armor from the real period. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> okay. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, ca- I came to it with my prejudices, my preconceived notions. They can do whatever they want, obviously. This is this is their uh, version of the story, and certainly there have been so many, many, many versions of the story. Um, I get up. I don't agree with the people who get upset because they didn't stick to a more traditional view of the story. Um, I don't. I'm. I guess I'm no purist as far as tradition goes. Not in the way I am a purist as far as the archaeology goes. They could have done whatever they wanted, and um, I would not have had that much of a problem with it. People get upset because they made Achilles and Patroclus cousins in the Troy movie. But there is a version of the story where they are cousins. So that's perfectly legitimate as far as I'm concerned. So I would like to make, I guess I just need to make it clear that as far as their version of the actual story, I didn't have really any problem with it. Okay. Um, At the end of your book, uh, I just thought you might want to tell us a little something about the Institute for Mediterranean Studies. Uh, It was... Is this something, an organization you've been involved with, or? The Institute for Mediterranean Studies is part of the classics department at the University of Cincinnati. The University of Cincinnati in, in Ohio is the American partner in the current excavations at, at Troy. These excavations began in 1988. They're led by the University of Tübingen from Germany. But it's an international uh, international effort, so they have scholars from all over the world. Uh, the excavations have sort of, they haven't quite ended, but they've been greatly reduced for the past, I don't know, eight, eight years or so. And uh, the University of Cincinnati isn't, isn't really active there anymore. But they are still the American partner at Troy. They are basically researching post-Bronze Age not the not the period that I'm interested in, but they, as the American partner, they do represent the entire excavation in the U.S. And they're still seeking funds, so I, I donate a little bit of money every once in a while, and I do publicize their efforts at, at raising money with Age of Bronze, since I think it's a really important uh, site. Obviously, Troy is a, is a major, major site for that's important in the world to for both science and the arts. The excavations that are going on there now, it's the fourth fourth major excavation. Yeah, the last time Troy was, was excavated was in the 30s and, and 40s. Is that right? I can't remember. Oh, I'm sorry, I may be getting this wrong. The, uh, the, the Blagan expedition was earlier, but the current expedition, which was led by Manfred Korfman and is now led by... Ernst Pernica is um, 
is important because we have so much greater technology than the last time excavations were run that there we have discovered many, many new things about Troy. Just the magnetometer capability that we have, we discovered the lower town from the Bronze Age, which was totally unknown previous to that. We sort of knew that there had to have been a lower town, but no one knew exactly where it was, and there was no evidence for it. But now we have it. In the mid-'90s, they found, found it, found a circuit ditch. And also, funding these researches, even after the excavations uh, have been reduced, and uh, even at the point when they're going to have to shut down, at some point, I assume they're going to end, the publication of all the material and all the discoveries and the analysis and all that stuff is going, it's also going to cost money. And all that stuff's really just as important as, as actually having the archaeologists go to the site and dig and do all their activity there. So um, I just think it's, I, I do what I can to publicize the fact that they're, they're still going to need money. And the Institute of Mediterranean Studies accepts donations. Um, they have a, a, a very informal organization called Friends of Troy, which if you donate to, you belong to automatically, and they send out reports, excavation reports once a year, and then they, and they send out little newsletters of interesting things that are, are happening around the excavations about, about Troy, about the Bronze Age Mediterranean world. They send those out a few times a year. Are you working on anything now that you want to tell the public about? Well, I'm still doing Age of Bronze. Um, okay. I'm working on issue 32, which will be part of the fourth book, the fourth graphic novel. This section I'm working on right now is the Troilus and Cressida story. In fact, the pages I'm working on right now are Cressida being turned over to the Achaeans against Troilus's wishes. This is actually a section of the story that's not from ancient Greece. It is more, it is a development out of the medieval tradition of the story. Uh, probably the way most people know this section of the story is from Shakespeare, from his play, Troilus and Cressida. There's also a major poem by Geoffrey Chaucer, uh, Troilus and Crusade, which is also, uh, I'm also using it as reference for the story. And that's what I'm working on right now. Another major project that I do is I write scripts for comics adaptations of the Oz books by L. Frank Baum. Those are published by Marvel Comics. Working on the scripts for the fourth Oz book right now, Dorothy and the Wizard in Oz. Ozma of Oz, the third Oz book, is being serialized and will be out in graphic novel form in the fall. And The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the first book, and The Marvelous Land of Oz, the second book, are, are out now. Those were published within the last couple of years. Age of Bronze also is undergoing uh, a web. It'll be on the web in a interactive digital enhanced book uh, very soon. Um, the major announcement of that will be this summer in July. Um, it's going to be uh, available on the web, um, and every every page is going to be annotated with my sources and discussions of how the story developed through the ages, artistic sources, archaeological sources, and literary sources. There's going to be areas for discussion so that if you download the, di the digital enhanced book, you can uh, go on to the discussion board and 
and to hear reactions and discuss with other readers things about the story. The major market that we see is educational, but it's certainly not going to be limited to educational. So this is going to be published by Throwaway Horse. Throwaway Horse, that's the company? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Age of Bronze itself, the comics and graphic novels are published by Image Comics, which I neglected to mention, but I would like to mention that. Sure thing. Well, I, I, I just have one more question. Uh, is there anybody in your series uh, of Age of Bronze that you identify with? <laughs> well, <laughs> any, I, any hero that you want to pick out? <laughs> as the as the as the creator of Age of Bronze, I have to identify with every single one of the characters that I write about because, as I said, it's historical fiction. I'm telling it dramatically. It's it's a story full of conflict, and you were talking about the emotions on the characters' faces, so I have to be able to understand every single character, every action, every event that happens. And I'm, and I'm telling it on human levels, and I'm, so that's what I'm really trying to bring out is the human aspect of everything. So I identify with every character okay. as a part. Um, I guess I'm not the, a lot of the background characters, a lot of the guys who don't have just warriors standing around or fighting on the battlefield in the background. I can't say I identify with a lot of them. But yeah, on a human level, I have to understand everything that's going through the heads of every single one of my characters. But that said, I think Hector is possibly my favorite character in the story. Even though he dies not a very glorious way, all he's ever trying to do is do the best he can to be upstanding. I guess his fatal that's part of his fatal flaw, too. He feels such responsibility for his place in his society in Troy that that's why he died, because he cannot walk away from it. He cannot say, I, this is not a good situation for me. i got to get out of this right now. So I think that's admirable. Unfortunately, it's also the reason that he gets done all in with. Well, uh, listen, uh, Mr. Schanauer, I want to thank you for taking the time and talking with us. Um, Okay, I just want to say thank you very much, Rob, for, for this opportunity, and I've enjoyed talking to you. If you would like to check out Mr. Shanauer's graphic novel, The Age of Bronze, try going to his website. It's located at ericshanauer.com. That's E-R-I-C-S-H-A-N-O-W-E-R.com. If you have any comments about the show... Uh, phone our hotline at uh, 855-209-6230, 855-209-6230. I really would like to hear from you. Well, that's all for Ancient Rome Refocused. Before I go, I want to thank Homer, Euripides, Christopher Marlowe, the recent movie Troy for their contributions to the opening piece, Nancy for her portrayal as the goddess Aphrodite, Oh, and of course, the uh, great actress Irene Pappas and Julie Christie. You might have heard their voices in there. This is just a reminder, anything used on the show falls under the fair use doctrine or has been obtained or purchased by permission of the author. We'll see you soon. Take care. This is Ancient Rome Refocused. Refocused.